John chapter 1, we have come as far as verse 43, where it says, the day following. So as we're following our sequence, the first day that it really tracked for us in John chapter 1 was when Jesus when John the Baptist, I'm sorry, is talking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Then it tells us down in verse 29, the next day after that, John the Baptist points his finger and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then verse 35 says, Again the next day, John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples, uh, Andrew and John, and uh, again he says, The Lamb of God... And then it tells us here now, the day following. So this is four days in sequence that we're looking at. And two of those days, the last two days, have been in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we've watched him. Uh, So on this second day of his ministry, we're going to see him gather to himself Philip and Nathaniel. He feels the necessity to go into Galilee. Let's read to the end of the chapter. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael. And saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the, law, uh, in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? But Philip said unto him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I have said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven, the heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So now we're going to add two more disciples. It seems five of them have have journeyed from Judea to the area of Galilee. Peter and Andrew, James and John, and Jesus. Now as they get into their area of Galilee, we're going to see them encounter Philip and Nathaniel. And they are then added to the number of disciples. So there will be six disciples and Jesus, we know for sure, that go to the wedding. Jesus is going to make his way to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, but that's not why he's going. That's certainly part of it. But it says, when he goeth into Galilee, he findeth Philip. Very interesting. It tells us Philip was of Bethsaida. 
The interesting picture here is we know John the Baptist played a role and he pointed out Jesus, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. We know that Andrew went and got Peter, findeth Peter, and brought him to Jesus. And it seems that John went and got James and brought him to Jesus. But this is Jesus doing his own evangelism here. There's nobody's in between. He goes and finds Philip. It tells us this is Jesus doing his own soul winning at this point in time. Now, interesting, Philip, why would a good Jewish boy have a Greek name? And maybe that's why Jesus went and found him, because if you were going to pick 12, you probably wouldn't have picked a guy with a Greek name. Probably wouldn't have picked Judas either, but you wouldn't have picked a guy with a Greek name. So Jesus went and found him. We only know about Philip from John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke list him in the list of the apostles, the list of the 12 names. But the only data, the only information we have on him is from John's gospel. And John was also from Bethsaida. So it's a good chance they knew each other growing up. And most famous Philip that had lived was Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. There was Philip the Tetrarch who ruled over this area who had shown great favor to Bethsaida, had done many good things for the people in the area, and had made Bethsaida a recognized city under his jurisdiction. So perhaps his parents were Hellenists that moved back to Israel. He was born there. They gave him the name Philip because they had some political connection, we don't know. All we know is it's a Greek name. He's a Jewish disciple. Jesus goes and finds him. As we follow Philip through, John tells us this in chapter 6, almost a year later. It says, The Passover feast of the Jews was nigh, and when Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come to him, he said to Philip, when shall we buy bread for this, these many that they may eat? And this he said to prove him, to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him and said, Well, 200 penny worth denarii of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may eat a little. There's not, we don't have enough funds to, to do this. He said that to test him. We have... Philip again in chapter 12, and it says there were Greeks that came up to Jerusalem to worship. So they're proselytes of the gate. And they go to Philip, probably because he has a Greek name, and say, we want to meet Jesus. And Philip, instead of taking him right there, he goes to Andrew. So there's always a little bit of doubting there with Philip. We are doubting Thomas. He's really doubting Philip. And then when we get to chapter 14, remarkably, we hear from Philip. Again, Jesus said, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus said unto him, have I been so long a time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the father how sayest thou then, show us the Father? So in each instant when we come to Philip, he's, he's doubting a bit. You know, uh, 
the multitudes being fed. He's, he's hesitant. He's, you know, reticent there. When we see him with the Greeks, he doesn't want to just do it. He gets Andrew first involved. And then when we see him in the upper room, in the, the upper room discourse, they're alone with the Lord. And he, he says, he said, well, show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. Philip, how long have I been with you? You don't know me. You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Each time he's a little bit of a doubter. We see his name again in Acts 1.13 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. He's with them. And we're given in church history the idea that he went to Phrygia and was martyred there. He had ministered in different places but ends up there. And uh, church tradition, Eusebius, the early church fathers tell us he was martyred there. He was crucified. He was put to death. The interesting thing is this hesitant man, this man who kind of we don't hear about in the other Gospels, this is a man that Jesus wants. Jesus goes into Galilee and he finds Philip. And when he finds Philip, all he's got to say is, follow me. There's no explanation. There's no that, that, that. It's not what he does to Nathaniel. All he's got to do is say to Philip, follow me. It's Because it's interesting. Philip's going to say to Nathaniel, we have found him who Moses wrote about and is written about in the prophets. So Philip, undoubtedly, though a quiet individual, someone who no doubt the other guys would not have singled out to be part of the apostolic band, has a man that sits alone with the scripture. He knows the first five books of the Bible of Moses. He knows what the prophets had to say. And when Jesus finds him, all he needs to say is this, follow me. And Philip did that for the rest of his life. Follow me, there's an imperative there again. You need to do this now and continually. Be with me, follow me. When Jesus does that, he's not just talking about, let's go up the hill and talk, follow me. He's saying you need to join yourself to me now. Matthew, of course would say this with, with the same word. Then said Jesus to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The idea is to become a disciple, to walk with. And all he has to do is look at Philip and say, Philip, follow me. And that's it. Jesus wanted him. Jesus knew how he would be used. Jesus knew he would be used to bring the Greeks. Jesus tested him when the multitude was to be fed. Jesus knew he'd end up in Phrygia as a Hellenist. He no doubt had incredible ministry there. Jesus knew he would be martyred for his faith in, in himself and his love for Jesus and wanted him and went and found him. Same way he does today. The person that's sitting quiet, the person that's searching all this out in their own mind, the person that wants to know for themselves, the person that maybe nobody else picks out or spends time or calls up or says, hey, you want to go here? Jesus finds that person. How many of us are like that? And he found us. He found us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus finds him. And then John... 
adds in verse 44, Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, also James and John, with fishing industry. It's interesting, as we read Mark's gospel, Mark had spent a great time with Peter. Mark 1.29 tells us by the time Jesus' public ministry is really beginning, by that time, Andrew and Peter have moved their headquarters to Capernaum. And he he would be there at the house of Peter and Peter's mother-in-law and so forth. But he says his origin, he was of Bethsaida. He's of that area. And then it says, Then Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him of whom... Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, Come and see. So Philip goes and finds his friend Nathanael, and he says, We found the Messiah, the the one that's in, in the things that Moses wrote, Abraham sacrificing his son, the, the Passover lamb, you know, all of the things that we have. In, and in the prophets, Isaiah 53, he was born in Bethlehem. He's called a Nazarene. He claims that his mother was a virgin and the, the, the religious leaders are picking all. He said everything is in law. It's in this guy. We found him. We found him. We found the, the Messiah. And no doubt Nathaniel, when he hears that, we found the Messiah He's thinking he's going to say in Zion. He's from Judea. Not to his shock. He says Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel says Nazareth. And we find out Nathaniel is from Cana. So he's a Galilean. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So you got to get the picture. The Judeans thought anybody who lived in Galilee was a hick. No prophet coming out of Galilee near the Sanhedrin. And people that lived in Galilee thought people that lived in Nazareth were hicks. He's got his own prejudice in Galilee, even though he's from Galilee. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Sepphoris was the Roman capital of Galilee, and it was four miles north of Nazareth. Cana was a few miles south of Nazareth. And Nazareth had gained a reputation because Roman troops were going through there all the time. So there were harlots in Nazareth. There were places to drink and so forth. Many of the Nazarenes were hired by the Romans because they were close. And the the Jews in Judea looked down on any fraternizing with the Gentiles, particularly the Romans. So Nazareth had gotten a reputation by this point in time. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, you know. And he says to him, come and see. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't argue with Nathaniel because he knows he knows the writings of Moses and the prophets. He doesn't argue. He, he just says, come and see. The same thing that we should say to our friends, you know, we, we have friends that want to argue, unbelievers, you know, that... Just, we could say, come and see. Just, you have to come to him. Don't, don't believe me. Get alone somewhere. Get on your knees and say, if you're really there, 
And you really died for me. And you really love me. I don't believe it, but if you're there, I want to see. We need to do the same thing to get them to Jesus. Just see. I'm not going to argue. Go to him. See what happens. Come and see. Now, Nathaniel. We only know about Nathaniel, again, from John. Only know about Philip from John. We find Nathaniel here named, and we see the remarkable discourse between him and Jesus. We find Nathaniel in one other place. In John chapter 21, it says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples, very important, and speaking of the apostles, at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples. So it names Nathanael as one of the apostles in John 21, but we don't find him anywhere else but John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all list Bartholomew. And they always list Bartholomew next to Philip, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the book of Acts 1.13, there Bartholomew is named, but it's Philip Thomas, then Bartholomew, but again in the same company. So Bartholomew seems to be that friend of Philip, but here in John's gospel, he's called Nathaniel, which means gift of God. And then in chapter 21, he's listed among the apostles that went fishing that day that Jesus gave them the great draw to fishes again. So what we assume then, and and I agree, most scholars say that um, Bartholomew is a name relative to family, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John, Bar-Abbas, son of the father. This is Bar-Tholomew. In the Greek, it's Bar-Tholomew, the son of Ptolemy, and his given name was probably Nathaniel Bar, the son of Ptolemy, because we have Bartholomew in the list of the twelve, we have Nathaniel in the list of the apostles, and that's the only two that are interchangeable. So we're believing that this Nathaniel happens to be Bartholomew. Tradition tells us again that Bartholomew ended his ministry in Phrygia with Philip and that he was crucified upside down. Some say Bartholomew was skinned alive and then crucified. These are men who gave their lives willingly for their Savior. And this is the first encounter we see. Philip goes, no doubt the first thing he thinks is, i got to get to my friend. He's always listed with Bartholomew, but his proper name seems to be Nathaniel. He went and found Nathaniel. He says, yo, Nate, whatever you call him. <clears throat> we found him. What do you mean we found him? Well, you know, the one Moses wrote of and the prophets, the Messiah. In Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He said, what what are you talking about? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
all right, come and see for yourself. You know, that's, that's the kind of the idea. And come and see, again, it's imperative. You have to come. And, and you have to see. you got to put this before your eyes. You need, you need to encounter this. And it says in verse 47, Jesus saw, he perceived, he saw Nathanael coming to him. And he saith of him about Nathanael, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. So Jesus, when he sees him coming, doesn't say it to Nathanael says it to the others that are there about Nathaniel. He says, behold, again, that's imperative. you got to look at this, he says. An Israelite, very interesting, indeed. It doesn't say, indeed, there is no guile. It is an Israelite, indeed. And then he adds, in whom there is no guile. You know, very interesting because when we come down, he's going to talk about the angels of God ascending and descending, which is a picture from the life of Jacob as he was fleeing from Esau, sleeping at Bethel, and found a rock for a pillow. And as he woke up in this dream, he saw the angels of God ascending. And he said, surely this is the doorway of heaven and so forth. The, the house of God, Bethel, he names it uh, deliberately then. And Jacob had seen that. But Jacob, we're told in Genesis 27, was a man of deceit. And it's the same word here we have for guile. And as Jesus sees him coming, because remember then, towards the end of his life, Jacob, when he, when he returns from Laban, he comes back and he's at the Jabbok River. And he's going to enter back into the territory of Israel. And at the Jabbok, he knows Esau's in the area, so he sends across his wives and his children first, the human sacrifice, and then sends across all his flocks and all of that. And he's still conniving there. And it says, when Jacob was left alone, there wrestled a man with him, which, of course, was the Lord. When Jacob was left alone, there wrestled a man with him. I am so thankful that Jesus has no desire to humiliate me. He could. He knows the selfishness, the anger, the last of things that go on inside me. I have a traitor that lives inside. He doesn't reign anymore. I'm so thankful that he'll wrestle with me alone. He's content to do that. No arm bar, he doesn't choke me out, but he whoops me. And he'll wrestle with me alone, and he'll wrestle with you alone. I'm so thankful. And of course, he puts Jacob's hip out of joint. Jacob limps for the rest of his life, but it's a blessed limp because he changes his name there to Israel. Um, Governed. By God. Isra, governed by El, God. He changes, his name changes there to governed by God or ruled by God. So when Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, he says, Consider this, an Israelite indeed, truly. This is someone who wants to be governed by God. I know this guy. Look at him coming. And he says, And in him there's no Jacob. There's no guile. There's no deceit. 
when you were around Nathaniel. Doesn't say Nathaniel wasn't a sinner. Doesn't say he didn't need forgiveness. He didn't need the cross. But what it says is when you got around Nathaniel, your baloney meter didn't go off. There was no, there was nothing hidden. There was no guile. You, you know people like that. He, he says an Israelite indeed. This is, this is what it was meant to be all about. This is a guy who wants to be governed by God. And there's no deceit. There's no guile. Interesting. And then Nathaniel responds, and he answered and said, you know, whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. He says, Nathaniel, before Philip found you, I found you. Before Philip saw you, I saw you. Not only do I know your nature, I know your whereabouts. I know what goes on inside of you. And I know where you sit alone. The idea is you were right under the fig tree. Fig trees were in leaf at this time of the year. Fig trees, the way the branches hang down, decent-sized fig tree, you could go sit underneath of it. It was shade, but it was privacy. No one would see you. You could do that. However far away that fig tree was, was it a mile, a half a mile? Was it 200 paces? We don't know. But he says to Philip, he says to Nathaniel, before Philip came, I was already there. Before Philip found you, I found you. Before Philip came and looked under that fig tree because he knows you hang out there, I saw you there. And he's going to say, because of that rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Look, we don't know what was the look in Jesus' face. What was the tone of his voice? What was his demeanor when he said Philip? I mean, Nathaniel, before Philip was there, I was there. When you were alone under that fig tree trying to get away from everybody, I saw you. I saw you. That's both comforting and distressing. It's interesting, an Israelite indeed under the fig tree, with a beautiful type there, but this is a little literal fig tree, and this man Nathaniel there to get away. Jesus precedes us all the time. If you have a burden for a family member, for a fellow student or somebody at work, understand, if you have a burden from the Holy Spirit for that person, the Lord is there before you are. The Lord already sees that person. The Lord finds that person before you find that person. The Lord alone adds to the church daily such as should be saved. If you have a burden for someone, pray for them because God's already at them, already chewing on them. If you have a burden to go share Christ with somebody, do it with all sincerity because Jesus has already been sharing with them. If they get mad at you, they're really getting worn away. 
The ones who get mad, like Saul of Tarsus, end up to be the ones who are most committed when they finally come in. If you go witness to someone because the Lord's put a burden on your heart and they are really aggravated, they're close. Don't be discouraged. That's a good thing. That's a good sign. So it's so interesting to see here. He says, I saw you when you were hidden away. His eyes watching when we're removed from all human investigation. His eyes watching what we are and where we are. Look. That he, he knows what's in my heart. He knows when I'm alone what's there. He knows in my privacy if there's anger. He knows if I'm thinking I'd like to hit that person with a right cross. It's a Christian punch. You know, he, he, he knows if there's anger, there's lust, if there's hurt, if there's doubt, if there's joy, if there's sorrow. It says here he sees into the heart. He sees us when we're in privacy. He sees us when we're alone. That's a remarkable thing for you and I to think about because we're willing to say, you know, my Lord and my Savior, you're the Son of God. We're willing to say that. But when he says it here, there's something cooking in his heart when he says it. You know, because you and I, we say we believe that he sees there, but we can be in church, sitting in church, in hypocrisy. Because humans see one thing, but there's something else going on in our life that we wouldn't want on the screen, right? Or we can be preaching in church and be smitten with hypocrisy. Because there can be something in our personal life we don't want on the screen. He sees us in those places. It tells us this in the book of Hebrews. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even, even unto the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, that which is soulish, that which is spiritual, and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the word. We know the word became flesh. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. David would say, Before thee and thee only have I sinned and done this great evil in thy sight with adultery and murder. There's, there's a, a great consolation in this. When, when we're alone, he sees us. When we feel really alone and isolated, he sees us, knows what we're thinking. And, and the, the challenging part is he knows what I am. He, he knows when there's no guile, and he knows when there is guile. He knows when I'm saying one thing but thinking something different. You know, Camel Morgan... One of the best books that he's written is called The Great Physician, and it's all of the characters through the four Gospels and Jesus' private meeting with them. And his premise is Jesus never asked a question for an answer. And we see that. He asked Philip, knowing what he's going to do, but he asks that he's the great physician, and he only asked the question 
so he can do surgery? He already knows the answer before he asks. And in that book, Morgan says here, as far as Jesus seeing things that others don't see, no human investigation sees about us. Camel Morgan said, I was riding in the buckboard with D.L. Moody, and we were headed to Massachusetts where Moody had a school where Morgan came across from England to teach, I think, several times. And he said, as we're riding, he said, Moody looked over at me and said, Morgan, do you know what character is? And he said, I could tell by the twinkle in his eye he wasn't asking a question. He was setting me up. He said he didn't want to know. He wanted to tell me what character was. So he said, uh, no, D.L., what's character? And he said, Moody looked at me and said, character is what you are in the dark. When the doors are shut and the blinds are drawn and the mask is off, That's character. And he knows that about us. You're sitting alone. You're struggling. You're broken. You're hurt. It says all of our tears are recorded. They're saved in in a bottle. There isn't any tear you've ever shed when you're alone that he hasn't seen. There isn't any anger you've had that he isn't willing to sit with you alone. There's no, 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 you don't need to say to him, Lord, I really love this person when you're thinking about punching him. Might as well be honest because he sees. He, he sees the inside of the heart. You need to say, Lord, I really want to slug this guy. I know it's right. Would you please change me? Because I can't change myself. Lord, I'm struggling with this temptation. I remember when I first got saved, struggling with drugs again. And I said, Lord, this is not going to change until I love you more than I love this line of cocaine on the table. You've got to reveal something of yourself to me that makes you more attractive than this. There's no sense saying, oh, Lord, I hate this. I didn't hate it. I liked it. That's why I was doing it, right? And I knew he knew what was in my heart. I knew he knew my struggles. And he does today, 50 years later. And he is as caring and as tender and as challenging now in my personal life as he's ever been. I am just more aware of what a failure I am without him than I've ever been. I sin less, but I repent more. Wonderful to see that he looks here at Nathaniel. He says, you know, before Philip got there, I was there. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And the look on his face, the tone of his voice, the glisten in his eye. Nathaniel had just been told, this is the one who Moses and the prophets speak of. We found the Messiah and just the confrontation Him knowing this is omniscience. No one could have known this but someone who sees more than others see. And he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. How remarkable. Whatever Nathaniel embraces at that moment. Now Jesus answers him and says, because I said unto thee, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? He said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Thou shalt see greater things than these. 
Nathaniel was going to see Jesus rebuke the wind and the sea. He would learn when we're in a storm in our lives. And that God allows those because he sent us into the storm. That he can rebuke the wind and the sea. Nathaniel's going to watch as Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. Nathaniel's going to watch the blind receive their sight, the lepers cleansed. Nathaniel is going to watch the Roman guards and temple police take Jesus away and beat him. Nathaniel is going to see him after the resurrection and sit and eat with him. Nathaniel's going to hear from him for 40 days. Nathaniel's going to watch him ascend into heaven. Nathaniel's going to be with the disciples in the upper room on Pentecost. Nathaniel's going to serve for the rest of his life and be martyred in Phrygia. Jesus said, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see greater things than these. And he sees the end, you know, the Lord from the beginning. And then he says this. He said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Very interesting. Verily, verily. Only John does that. It says Matthew uses the phrase verily 30 times. But he doesn't use verily, verily. Mark uses the term 14 times, just verily. Luke uses it seven times. Only John, 25 times, says verily, verily. Amen, amen. Truth, truth. He alone emphasizes it in this manner. Verily, verily. Now look, I say unto you, it changes to the plural there. I say unto all y'all here this morning as well. I say to all of you, hereafter you, plural again, shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Look, no doubt it was probably, I like to think, the scene with Jacob that he was sitting under the fig tree mulling over. It tells us here that the angels of God are ascending and descending. We would think the angels of God were descending and ascending. But he says, no, they're stationed in enemy territory. They're on duty. And occasionally they go back to headquarters to check in. They ascend, then they descend. They come back with fresh orders. We're told that there are angels who watch over the children. And you know your kids. Some of those angels go up and say, how much longer do I have to do this? Go on back there, you know. But angels... Keep them safe. Watch over them. It's a disgrace what our culture is doing to children. And Jesus says, woe unto anyone that stumbles one of these little ones. It would be better to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. Because God's angels watch over the children. We're abusing them today. They must come up and say, almighty God, what they're doing to the kids down there. What they're putting in front of their eyes. What they're teaching them. You know, we know that... The angels watch over individual believers. Hebrews 1.14, aren't they sent forth ministering spirits to minister unto the heirs, plural, of salvation? They minister in our lives. They watch us. We have guardian angels. 
They ascend occasionally to God. What do they say about us when they ascend? You see, God, do you see what's going on under that fig tree? You know, and, the, and they descend with fresh orders. We know if they're watching us, plural, the heirs of salvation, they watch over the church. How many times do they ascend and say, God, it's the last days. Your church is crucial. And they're divided over black and white, over vaxxed and unvaxxed, over Democrat and Republican. Oh, God Almighty, the world is lost. And the church is infected with the divisive attitude of the world. And those angels are sent back to minister, to uphold us, to strengthen us, to lead us. Angels over nations, we're told. Whatever is going on in the news, there's more involvement than we think from heaven. Nothing's out of control. All this was written ahead of time. The angels of God, we're going to see it in greater and greater measure, and particularly during those seven years of the tribulation while we're in heaven, we're going to see the angels ascending and descending. This remarkable scene put before him, heaven is involved in all of this. Nathaniel knows right away that heaven's involved. I saw you under the fig tree. He believes you because you, I said I saw you. You're going to see greater things than this, and you're going to see, he looks at all of them, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending. What a remarkable picture. Nathaniel, I think his last words, and it's just speculation, his last words were, can anything good come out of anywhere except Nazareth? <laughs> you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now he knows there's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one Savior. There's only one hope for mankind. Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was no way before him. There's only one way. And Nathaniel would say, can anything good come from anywhere except Nazareth? And he was martyred because of it. I'd encourage you this morning, your own heart, things you're wrestling with, know that he sees. If you're downcast, if you feel beat up, if you feel betrayed, he sees. If you're being tempted, if you're in rebellion, you're willingly sinning, he sees. We can come here and put on our mask because human beings can't make that investigation, but heaven does. And we can come, preach, sit in church in hypocrisy. It doesn't send us to hell. We have this great opportunity to go and confess our sins. John told us that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all righteousness. He calls us to himself. David, before thee and thee only have I sinned, done this great evil in thy sight. Adultery, murder. But God would say to Solomon, your heart is not perfect towards me like the heart of your father David. David didn't have other gods. He didn't build temples to other gods. David sinned before his own God, repented before his own God, did right before his own God, wrote songs before his own God, failed before his own God, succeeded before his own God. 
I encourage you. He watches today. He knows us. You know, when I sit alone with him, I, I want to have that consciousness. Lord, you're here. Before anybody else gets to me, you're here. You know my heart. You know what's going on. And, and Lord, that is an incredible consolation and a great challenge at the same time. Amen. And remember, can anything good come from anywhere but Nazareth? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things as we look into them, Lord. And the, the world doesn't know this yet, that nothing good is ever going to come from anywhere but Nazareth. The Lord, you've left us here at this time in human history. Let us, Lord, like Philip, just say to our friends and relatives, come and see. See for yourself. Come to Jesus. Lord, let us be better at that, Lord. Let us be, Lord, under the influence of your Holy Spirit when we do it. Let us be remembering when we get there, you've preceded us. And we put these things before you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.